The Sobey Art Award is Canada's most prestigious contemporary art prize, bringing national and international attention to Canadian artists age 40 and under. Stephanie Kamalang was the winner for 2019, picking up the $100,000 top prize. Learn more about Stephanie and the four Sobey finalists in the two-part series, The New Masters on CBC Ideas. For more information about the award, visit www.gallery.ca slash Sobey. This is a CBC Original Podcast. Hi, it's Lou. Just a heads up that the first story in today's episode deals with some very sensitive subject matter. If you'd like to skip ahead, jump to Minute 16. My mom, when she would come and visit me, she would, like, spend the entire visit just, like, rubbing my back, like, really hard, just, like, trying to trying to get some sense of touch back into my skin and back into my body. From CBC Original Podcasts, this is Love Me, a show about the messiness of human connection. I'm Lou. Today's episode, The Island and the Sea. A lot of times you'll hear people in prison say, I came in here alone and I'm going to leave alone. And that's kind of a shorthand way of saying, like, I'm here to look out for myself and nobody else. And that's how I came to see things, too. My name is Michael. Uh, I was in prison from 2013 to 2015. This was a a medium security prison, which means you've got maybe 60 guys on a floor or in a dorm. And um, this particular place, they had uh, converted these little rooms that were a little bigger than a phone booth into two-man rooms. Like in the morning when you'd get up out of bed for count, you'd have to always remember to like be getting up in a different spot on the floor than the guy across from you because our knees would be touching. Every inmate has their own like cork board where you're allowed to put up pictures of whatever you want. And normally, I, I didn't used to put anything on my cork board because I found it depressing. You know, I, I didn't want to see pictures of my family because I, I just made me miss them. And I didn't want to see pictures of cars I was never going to own. And I didn't want to see pictures of, you know, women I was never going to meet. It, that was just kind of depressing. I never really understood why people did that. So not putting anything up was always kind of my way of saying, like, I do not live here. This is not my home. After I'd been in for about 10 months, I moved into a room with this guy, Max. He'd been in prison since he was 16, um, and he was like in his 40s by the time I met him. And um, one of the first things that I noticed as I was unpacking was Max's corkboard. It was all cats. Cats in different, like, seasonal wear and, you know, with pumpkins around or with a Christmas tree or just whatever whatever the season happened to be. And I was like, Max, what's, uh, you got a bunch of cats up on your board. And he said, yeah, you know, I just, I love cats. You know, when I get out, I just, I really want cats. He told me that he used to torture cats when he was a teenager before he got locked up. And, um... And now, as a grown man, looking back on that, he felt really bad about it. And uh, 
he had this big plan that when he got out, he was going to like adopt a bunch of like stray cats and take care of them, and that that was like a big part of his plan um, after he got out, if he got out, because he was serving uh, life for uh, murder. When I was done unpacking, Max said, do you want any? Do you want some cat pictures for your board? And I guess I was just kind of in a good mood, so I was like, yeah, sure. So he gave me a bunch, and uh, we were just kind of cleaning up and, and uh, putting together like a, a cat collage, essentially. So I remember guys walking by, they would always kind of do a double take and, and kind of make fun of us. And uh, I remember they, uh, they used to call us the pussy room. In a weird way, that was the first time since I'd gotten to prison that I really felt any kind of even fleeting connection with somebody. Even though you you know you never really I never saw anybody in prison as my friend because I think that can be a dangerous thing to do. I knew a guy named Sherman who used to come over to my bunk and would want to chat and kind of talk about the, you know things on the outside and. And he ended up threatening to kill me over a bag of pretzels. So I knew by then that you can't really ever trust anyone. When somebody got mail, the first thing everybody would do would be to scratch off the return address because it's probably from a family member or from your girlfriend. And and if uh, anyone knows where they live, then they that's just one more detail of your life that they have that they can can hold over you so yeah it's like when you're you're walking and you're like you know leaving footprints behind you and, and it's that it's that like compulsion to have to like erase those footprints like I don't want anyone to know where I've been I don't want anyone to know where I'm going I barely want anyone to know where I stand now it was exhausting I mean it, it was it was a work to have to be kind of an island like that like it, it you know it, it's it's because in prison, you know, obviously it's a pretty boring place, but I was always I was always tired. And I used to wonder, like, how could you be so tired? And, and and I think it was because I was expending so much, like, mental and physical energy, like, keeping that guard up and kind of, like, having to play a role, essentially, because you, you can never be yourself. It's hard physically. It's hard in your body. It, it's it's strange to, to never be touched. No one ever hugs you. Like, no one ever... There's no physical, you know, touch of any kind that is makes you feel close to anyone. And I remember, like, my mom, when she would come and visit me, she would, like, spend the entire visit just, like, rubbing my back, like, really hard, just, like, just kind of rubbing back and forth on my back, like, over and over again, trying to, trying to get some sense of touch back into my skin and back into my body. And I would laugh at her, and I would say, like, what are you doing? And, and she said, well, you know, you're just sitting here in this shell. Your body is becoming a shell in here. When I was about halfway through, uh, I signed up to teach a re-entry course to kind of help guys readjust to life on the outside. So those classes would go over things like money management and family reintegration, and we would do mock job interviews, things like that. There's this misconception, I think, that when people are about to get out of prison that, they, that they're that they happy about that. And what I found, which is 
really the saddest thing that I kind of learned in there was that a lot of guys had a lot of concerns and a lot of worries. And so a big chunk of the class was about kind of talking through some of those. And so, you know, when it came to family, family reintegration, they'd say, you know, my, my daughter hasn't talked to me in 15 years or, you know, I went down to the mail room for legal mail one day and it was divorce papers for my wife. And now I have to go home and deal with that. And, um, there was even a guy who had not told his children he was in prison, and they thought he was um, in the military, I think. They thought he was, like, deployed. Teaching, compared to being a janitor, it was the closest I could come to doing some good while I was there. But it was it was frustrating because at the end of the day, you know, I did feel like we were throwing sticks in the wind because you're not going to, you know, solve all of their these massive problems by doing, you know, a mock job interview, you know, at a forklift company with them for three minutes. There was an inmate at that prison who we called Glass. Glass was, um, he was an older guy, and he definitely had some some mental illness that was kind of going unchecked. Um, you know, I'd see him just kind of, he'd kind of just totter around, the whole dorm and um, every day and, and he had this coffee cup that he used to carry around like upside down it was always empty he was just, like carrying it upside down like for no reason and he was always wearing they issue you these big winter coats and he would wear it all day like even when it was summer like he just he was always had this winter coat on and um, he got enrolled in one of the phase three courses that I was helping to teach he started coming up to me in the dorm and saying hey you know Mike hey it's me you know I'm in your class and you know, how are you? And, and he was, and he was pretty friendly. And, and I, you know, my, my strategy with those guys was always to kind of just smile and nod and, and try to be nice to them and kind of let them say their piece, uh, which was usually pretty incoherent, but just kind of let them talk. And then, and then eventually they drift away. And, and that was kind of the, the situation with glass. He would come over and talk about all these conspiracy theories and, and I would just kind of nod and, just kind of wait for him to go away so I could kind of get on with whatever I was doing. The six-week session, you know, came and went, and he, you know, graduated and was just kind of sitting there waiting to get released. And um, and then one day he hands me this letter. He says, I just want you to have this. And, and even the envelope, I remember, was, like, covered in, like, stickers and all this weird, like, chicken-scratch handwriting. And he'd taken all these horoscopes out of magazines and stuff and, like, reprinted them in the letter and was trying to make these weird connections about how somehow the horoscopes were saying something about what good friends we were. It was, you know, he was kind of making these strange kind of connections. And and the letter, it was very pleading. It was like he was begging and the first thing he wanted was money. He wanted like eight hundred and fifty-seven dollars, like like that exact amount. And um, you know, he said, "I really, I really need this exact amount of money." And you know, here's the here's the address of the homeless shelter I'm going to be at. You know, if you could send the money there, it'd be really great. You know, thank you so much. And and you know, you hear about guys getting extorted in prison, but like this this isn't what this was. Like he was being really friendly. Um, he just didn't understand that this was just a ridiculous thing to ask for because it's like I'm I'm in prison too. I sound like I have my wallet on me. I can't I can't give you any money. I don't know what to tell you. And um, the second thing Glass asked me for in the letter was he really wanted to have sex with me. He was telling me how he had uh, been watching me 
uh, in the shower and could we please, please, you know, do this before his release. I did not know how to respond to that. I was like, this is insane. I was really angry. And, and even though I knew he was crazy, I like wanted to hurt him like really badly to prove a point, you know, because you can't just do nothing because it's prison and, you know, you have to respond to everything. And if you just let someone get away with something like that, then what does that say about you? And, you know, it gets, it gets into that whole kind of prison mentality of how you have to handle certain things. And, you know, he tried to say hi to me one time when I was walking out of the bathroom and I just kind of wheeled on him and said, you know, don't, don't talk to me. You know, you go home, good luck. I don't want to hear from you between now and then. And and I could tell he was really shocked. And, you know, I, I kind of thought he was going to cry. But I didn't care. I turned around and I walked back in the dorm and I just kind of left him standing there. I remember even talking to one of the, the dorm correctional officers, one of the one of the regulars that would that would you know watch watch our dorm and saying, "This guy needs some help." And uh, there weren't really any resources for him where we were. And he said, "Yeah, you know, it's, he's crazy, but he's by no means the craziest. So it is what it is." And and I kind of thought, "Yeah, that, that's pretty much accurate." When I got out, which was maybe. Four months or so after after Glass had been released, I looked him up online to see what had happened to him. This news article popped up that he'd been convicted of first-degree rape maybe not even a month after he'd gotten released. The news story said it was a stranger. He didn't know her. Um... That's the only thing I know. As an inmate, you're used to thinking of yourself as powerless and you're you're told and shown on a daily basis that you are. But as a human being, there's a part of you that thinks you can influence things and can change something for the better. And so, you know, there's a part of me that thinks like, there had to have been something I could have done. I could have written a letter to the superintendent or I could have called my family and had them raise an alarm or, or had them notify the homeless shelter he was being sent to. That There had to have been something more I could have done. It's hard for me to not kind of frame that letter he wrote me as, as him somehow knowing that about himself. You know, he kept saying please, you know, which he spelled wrong. He spelled it with three E's over and over again to say, you know, please, Mike, please, you know, we're friends. We please let me do this, please. Please, please help me. And I didn't. When I got out at first and I was really struggling, you know, when people don't know what to say, they just say, Well, you know, well I'm I'm sure I'm sure things will work out and and I think, no, they're, they're actually not. Sometimes horrible things happen and everyone involved has their life completely shattered and no one learns anything and nothing gets better. You know, they say that you come into prison alone and that you leave alone, but you don't come out alone. 
because what you come out with is the memory of the people that you knew. Glass is one of the people that I knew. And what he did when he got out always stays with me. The water. My little boy floated quietly in the dark, and then he was born. I begynsen så var det var lave og vulkaner over det hele. In the beginning, there was just lava and volcanoes everywhere. The sprang med lave. Lava explosions. There was no water on Earth back then. Mennesker blev tørstige og sådan noget. The humans were thirsty. Nej, nej, der var der ikke mennesker. No, no back then there were no humans. Little by little, my boy becomes a young man. Så var der kometer, der landede på jorden, så... A comet landed on Earth. Så kom der vand fra kometerne. The comet hit Earth. And the water poured out of the comet. The earth was flooded. And all that water became the ocean. That's what happened. Så kom lavet ned i, i, i vandet, så blev det rigtig, rigtig torden og torden vær. All the lava poured into the water, and there was a huge thunderstorm. Så, og så kom dinosaurusserne. And then the dinosaurs came. And then the shower of shooting stars that killed the dinosaurs. Og så kom menneskerne. And then the humans came. father playing the piano in 1979 long before he fell from his boat and hurt his head and lost the ability to move his fingers or jump around a ship on the ocean the boat that my father fell from was on dry land and there was no water to catch him
friend tells me about a lake, an ice-cold lake high up in the Norwegian mountains. It's a flooded valley, he says. It used to be a valley, and now it's a lake. He's been diving in it, and down there, on the bottom of the lake, he saw a pathway. People used to walk there when it was a valley. I dream about the lake. I dream about the water. And in my dream, the water becomes time. And the time is rising. It fills the days. It turns them into flooded valleys. Childhood has become a lake. I glimpse it through the surface of the cold water. I dream about the lake. I dream about holding my breath and existing there in that landscape again, just for a little while. My father in a coma in the hospital. My childhood phone number in my fingertips, 7763. I call the answering machine to hear his voice. I did this from time to time, until a new message was recorded. The water. Hateful. The ocean. The ocean. My boat building father took me sailing on the ocean. I remember the wind and the salty water and the waves. I remember big waves and strong winds. I remember feeling safe in the storm. The water. The ocean. The fish. There are fish. Or the black spider. And there are octopuses. Or the sjøheste. And seahorses. And seahorses. And seashells. And seashells. Up a button at a sugarskeeper. The the a fellow the new. And on the bottom of the sea there are pirate ships. Pirate ships. Which have fallen through the surface. The water. Sometimes a comet hits the earth and creates an ocean, and it creates lakes, rain, even tears. A little boy floats quietly in the dark, and then he is born. There was no water to catch my father. For a while, I stopped sailing. The water. There's a pathway on the bottom of the lake. People used to walk there.
That was The Water, produced by Reka Haud. Reka is a radio producer based in Denmark. We'll have a link to more of her work on our website. Her piece featured music by Ilva Betancourt. At the beginning of today's show, you heard Michael. A big thanks to Michael for sharing his story. Love Me is produced, edited, and mixed by Mira Bertwentonic and Crystal Duhame in Montreal. Love Me's original theme music is by Tim Kingsbury. Tim is a member of Arcade Fire and Sam Patch. Scoring music by Murray Lightburn. Murray is a member of The Deers. This episode also featured music by Malt Tabulated Sounds and Michael Ray of Mixolodeon. Subscribe to the podcast at cbc.ca slash loveme or through your favorite podcast app. If you like the show, please tell your friends about it. It would mean a lot to us. I'm Lou Olkowski. Tune in next week for a brand new episode. In the meantime, want more CBC podcasts? Check out Sleepover, where you can hear stories from people like Ben, a 13-year-old looking for tips about how to make friends. Here he is talking about his troubles with Kai Chang, a trans artist and social worker. Kids are dumb. They bully people. I have a question for you. Have you ever been bullied before? Yeah, I don't think of it as bullying, but but you're right. It is bullying. Sometimes because I'm trans. I would never do that. I would never do that. No, you wouldn't. You're a nice guy. I see that. I have to tell you, Ben, sometimes people are going to be mean to you as an adult, too. But you can now and also when you're a grown up, you can stand up for yourself. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.